Um, if you will look up on the screen very quickly, we have this cool graphic which Brendan Bergen does for us. He does all these graphics for us in church. Thank you, Brendan. Uh, but it says Credo. And so we are actually, um, we just finished up the series on uh, the things I wish Jesus had never said, all those sayings that were really difficult and uh, that really pushed us into uncomfortable places, right? We just finished that series, and we're jumping into a six-week series called Credo. And uh, again, the word Credo, it comes from the Latin word, which means I believe, I believe. And uh, what we have, and the reason we're doing this is because there are several documents that the church has embraced now for uh, almost 2,000 years. The first document that we're going to be sort of basing this series off of is called the Apostles' Creed. We read it earlier this morning, and uh, it's one of these creeds that has been around really since um, the first century. We don't know all of the origins of it, but we have snippets of it that show up in ancient writings. And so we're going to be using uh, the Apostles' Creed as one of our texts, um, and then we're going to be using the Nicene Creed, which was written in 325 AD. But essentially, what, the reason these creeds arose is because the early church, as the gospel spread, the good news about Jesus entering into humanity in order to rescue humanity, um, they, the church needed to kind of clarify, all right, here's what it is that we believe, right? And so that message of credo or determining what we believe is just as important in the year 2015 as it was um, in the first century or the fourth century, right? And so we're going to be unpacking some of these truths from these two historic creeds. Now, I don't know if you guys have noticed, I bet you have, you're sharp, that uh, the theme really of uh, the whole service today has been the fatherhood of God, right? And it's an, it's an amazingly important theme, and Laura hinted at it. It's important because the way that we view God is oftentimes has a lot to do with the way we view our own earthly fathers, what kind of a relationship we had with them. We have a tendency to project that upon God. We have a tendency to, to misperceive who God is. And so Jesus clarified uh, in many ways who his father truly was. Now, the first line of the Apostles' Creed is this, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. That's going to be the theme of the sermon today. We're going to be unpacking it in just a moment. But before we do, let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would let this um, truth about you, as it's been communicated through your son, Jesus, I pray that this truth of your fatherhood would be um, paradigm shifting for us. I pray that it would change the way that we not only view ourselves, but I pray that, uh, that it would change the way that we see you. And I pray that we would see you as our good, good father, and instead of running away from you, um, or trying to simply appease you or manage you, that we would run to you as you run to us. And so, Father, uh, it's in your name that we pray all of these things today. Amen. The kindness. He is my Superman. Daddy wants me to do well at school. Daddy is just great, but... He lies. He lies about having a job. He lies 
without having money. He lies that he's not tired. He lies that he's not hungry. He lies that we have everything. He lies about his happiness. He lies because of me. Okay, if you're a guy and you just teared up a little bit, raise your hand just a little bit, just teeny. Anyway, you know, it's funny. I've watched that like six times and I totally am a sap, man. I just get a little teary at it. And it's like selling Met Life. That's even worse. And it's like they don't care anything about fatherhood. All they want to do is make money. Anyway, whatever. That's probably not true. Anyway, point is that uh, that video, which I could have stopped halfway, but then it was just too good. Anyway, but uh, that whole video is really about this little girl's perception of her father or perceptions some of which are accurate, you know, that he loves her and he's sacrificing for her. Some of uh, her perceptions are inaccurate. They're not true. He's probably not the most handsome man in the world. He's probably not the strongest man in the world, right? So she's got sort of a mixture of correct perceptions, but then also some misperceptions as well. There's a very real sense in which uh, we have those same misperceptions and correct perceptions with our earthly fathers, right? Um, But ultimately, this isn't about earthly fathers today. It's about our heavenly father, right? It's about the ways in which we may or may not perceive him correctly. And ultimately, what we see uh, in Luke chapter 15, this section we're going to read in just a moment, is that part of what Jesus came to do was not only to correct um, our perception of who his heavenly father, our heavenly father is, but also to correct our perception of who we are in relationship to him. So we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. Now, many of you guys are probably familiar with this story that Jesus told. It's usually called the prodigal son, uh, but if anything, it maybe should be called um, the prodigal father, if you've ever you know, read Tim Keller's take on this before, because really, ultimately, the father is, who is central to this story, and, and the way that the two boys relate to him is uh, sort of the ground for us understanding ourselves. But let's jump into this passage. I'm going to read the whole thing, so it's a little bit long, but it's a story, so I think we can hang in there. Beginning verse 11, Luke chapter 15. And by the way, Jesus is talking to a mixed crowd. His disciples are in the crowd. Um, There are sinners in the crowd, tax collectors and prostitutes and sort of the irreligious people 
who Jesus has been reaching out to, and they find him amazingly refreshing. And on the other hand, you also have the Pharisees and the religious folks in the crowd who frankly find Jesus kind of disconcerting. But, but all those groups are in the crowd as Jesus tells this story, and the story is ultimately very much about them. Verse 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger brother got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, this is one of the, the deepest and most meaningful parables that you'll probably read in the New Testament. In fact, it's been called the greatest story ever told by any number of different people throughout history. And uh, we're only going to be able to touch on a few of the truths that come out in this because there's really so many different things. And so, um, again, I just ask you to, to hear the couple of very simple things we're going to talk about today. First of all, what I want to do is I want you to look at this passage and I want you to see that there are really three characters in this story that Jesus tells, right? In this narrative parable that he tells. And the three, young, the three um, characters are the younger brother, the older brother, and the father. And Jesus, in portraying each of them, he reveals something about each of their hearts that the crowd doesn't realize. Part of what Jesus is doing is he's actually revealing to them what's in their own hearts as younger brothers, as older brothers, and even what's in their heart about his heavenly father. Let's begin by looking uh, at the younger brother. And the misperception of the younger brother here is that the only way to relate to God is to simply escape from him, to get away, 
right? And so this, this are, these are the people who have been irreligious. These are the people who have who've said, I'm out. I'm getting away from God. He's a tyrant. He's a bully. He's scary. I'm out of here. I'm escaping. Listen to verses 11 through 13. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. The younger son would have gotten a third of the estate. The older son would have gotten two thirds of the estate. And in doing this with the younger son is basically doing to the father is basically saying, I don't care anything about you. I'm, I, you're dead to me. I just want what you've got. I don't want you. I want you've got what you've got. Give it to me. I'm out, right? And then it says, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. What this younger son was doing was he was running away, right? He looked at his father and he said, my father doesn't want me to flourish. He doesn't want what's best for me. He obviously doesn't have my best interest in mind. He's trying to hold me down. And so I'm running away. I'm getting away from him. I am escaping, right? Okay, some of us have had that same experience before, um, not only with God, right? Some of us in this room are younger brothers, but we've had that same experience with our parents, right? We've run away from home before. I bet if we had a show of hands, there'd be a handful of you that made it like three blocks away. And then you sat down under a tree and had a peanut butter sandwich you made for yourself and an apple. And then you got hungry and you went home 42 minutes later and your parents never even knew that you ran away, right? That happens. But usually when we run away, it's because we don't believe that our parents want what's best for us or they don't, they don't want us to flourish. Um, actually, I got online. And I looked at some really funny um, runaway notes that kids left their parents. So I think I've got a list of them up here really quickly. See if I can read this one. Um, okay, so this is a runaway note that some, some child has left uh, their parent. It says, by the time you read this, I will be, I can't remember, see what it says. Yeah, I can't read that. You, yeah, you see what it is. Anyway, if you want to see me again, I will be at the first McDonald's that you see when you go right from our house. I love you, right? <laughs> Which is awesome. I love that. That's so good. And I love the fact that he was like, I know I need food. I'm going to McDonald's. I maybe afford that. All right, this one is good. Mom, I ran away not because you're mean or anything. I only wanted to meet the Spice Girls. <laughs> Sarah. Okay, that must be from the late 90s or something, because I think the Spice Girls are kind of, yeah. Anyway, I, you're not going to be able to read this one, so I, I'm going to have to read it. Here's another one. It says this, Dear everyone, she, she's writing this to her whole family, I'm leaving home. I know Jerry and Dad love me, but Mom doesn't. And, th- <laughs> and thanks for letting me use your house these long eight years. <laughs> I can see Mom doesn't want us, most likely me, so I'm leaving this letter to Jerry and Dad, and maybe Mom, okay, Mom too, Jerry may have my chair and dad can have my room and mom can have the thing I sleep with. I don't know what that means. I got to go now. I'll see you one day. So bye. Almost your little girl, Savannah, right? And so you can, now that's interesting. Again, you know, it's very possible that this is, you know, maybe her mom said, no, you can't have a second candy bar, but it's possible this is deeper. Point is, she doesn't believe, and maybe it's true in this case, that her mom doesn't really truly want what's best for her. Next Uh, Next letter, this is the last one. Dear mommy, your troubles are going to be gone soon. I will run away tomorrow so you can have a better life without me, Ariana. P.S., Carla is a better daughter than me anyhow, right? And she's got pictures, she's got artwork. Now, some of those are funny, but obviously, you know, via your response, some of you read those and you're like, oh, that's kind of heartbreaking that any little child would think that of their parents. Partly because, again, sometimes we've grown up in families where our parents really didn't have our best interest in mind. 
But sometimes it's also because as little children, we looked at our parents and we misinterpreted um, their actions toward us. We thought because they made us go to bed at nine o'clock that they didn't love us, right? They didn't want us to flourish. We thought because they wouldn't watch it, let us watch whatever the scary movie is that they, again, didn't love us. They didn't want us to flourish, right? One of the main reasons that little children run away is because they don't believe or know that their parents love them and that they're doing what is ultimately best for them. And we do the same thing with God, right? We do the same thing with God. We think the same thing with God. We think he's trying to keep me from flourishing, right? He's trying to keep me from being the best I can be. He doesn't really want what's best for me. So I'm going to take my flourishing into my own hands and I'm going to try to take care of myself, right? You understand that? Now, what's interesting is that response of, I don't trust God. I don't believe that he's good. I don't believe he loves me. I don't believe he wants what's best for me. So I'm going to take it into my own hands. That is absolutely the lie that Satan tells Eve in Genesis chapter three. Listen to the words um, of the discourse here in Genesis three. It says this, now the certain was, serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? What Satan is doing is he's putting a little bit of doubt into Eve's mind, right? Does God really love you? Did he really say that? Like, that seems so crazy that God would say that. Can you, can you trust him? Are you sure? Right, this says, then the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Verse four, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, what Satan does there is he says, you're not gonna die. God's just trying to keep something good from you. Does that make sense? God doesn't want you to flourish. That is exactly the same lie that Satan tells us today. So we need to ask the question, did God really say that sexual intimacy is to be experienced only in the context of marriage, right? I mean, is that, I mean, it, does God really think that's best for us? Did God really say that lying is really all that bad? Did God really say that gossip and slander were that big of a deal? Did God really say that getting drunk was such a big deal or such a problem? Some of us think if God insists on limiting my behavior, then he obviously doesn't care about my flourishing, so I'll have to escape and I'm gonna have to take flourishing into my own hands. Does that make sense? God can't be trusted. I'm gonna have to take flourishing into my own hands. If he wants to limit my behavior, he's obviously a wicked, evil, bully tyrant. But let me ask a question. Doesn't flourishing, doesn't flourishing always involve limiting your freedom? Doesn't it always involve limiting your freedom? You know, for those of you in the room who are cross-country runners or soccer players or basketball players, doesn't becoming a great athlete mean that sometimes you have to say no to the ice cream, right? Doesn't it mean that sometimes you have to say no to the club? Doesn't it mean that sometimes you have to say no to going out with your friends because you have to stay in and practice, right? You have to limit your freedom if you're going to become the best you can be, right? Uh, flourishing always involves limiting your freedom. If you're a great student, then that limiting your freedom is always part of the package, right? It always means that you've got to stay home sometimes uh, on a Friday night or you've got to do work on a Saturday when you'd rather be hanging out doing other things. But in order to be a great student, you have to limit your freedom. If you want to be a great musician, there are times where you have to say no to sleeping in and you have to get up and practice the piano for an hour in the morning, right? Uh, to flourish, it always means limiting your freedom. God desires you to flourish 
And just because he places limitations on you doesn't mean he doesn't love you. In fact, it means the opposite. It means he wants you to flourish. He wants you to be the best that you can be. And by the way, loving relationships always involve limiting our freedom. Let me say that one more time. Loving relationships always involve limiting our freedom. Does that make sense? You saw the dad in the video earlier who loved his daughter, right? Loved her enough that he did all those spare jobs along the way. He limited his freedom. He could have gone and hung out with his buddies, but instead he worked because he loved her. Does that make sense? You know, when um, a, a, a young man who's 19 or 20 meets a young girl, he begins to, without rehearsal or without thought, make promises of how he will love her forever, right? Flourishing always involves limiting our freedom, loving relationships, especially so. You know, Whitney Houston, if you guys remember Whitney Houston, Whitney Houston didn't say, I'll love you for a little while. She said, I will always love you. Remember that song? You mean to sing it? Lionel Richie, who maybe some of you know, maybe not, did not sing a time period of love. He sang endless love, right? Again, the point is, is that, that so many of you in this room are running away from God. You've rejected God, right? You've said God is someone to be escaped from because you believe that he's a tyrant. You believe he's a scary person. You believe that he doesn't want what's best for you. He doesn't want you to flourish. And you say, I'm gonna go take care of that on my own. And what Jesus is doing in this passage, he's, he's saying to the irreligious in the crowd, he's saying, this is how you view God. This is what you think about him. That the only way to handle him is to run away and to escape. And by the way, if he is a tyrant, and if he is a bully, then maybe that's not such a bad idea, right? To escape God. Now, the older brother, the message, the view, the misperception of the older brother is different, but similar in some respects. The older brother, the lens he views God through is, a, is really a lens of religion. And where in religion, the only hope or the only way to deal with God is to appease him. So the younger brother says, escape God, run away from him. The older brother says, you just got to appease him. And that's sort of what religion says. So verse 28 says this, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. One of the marks of religious people, people that haven't truly understood who God is and and how to have a relationship with him. One of the marks of religious people is they're always angry with God because they think that he owes them and he hasn't given them what they have deserved or what they've earned, right? So he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, just kind of a rude sort of stark term in the Greek. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, right? He uses words like slaving. The older brother views God as a taskmaster and as a slave driver, right? And he says, I've never disobeyed your orders. The older brother views God as a commanding officer, maybe a boss. He says, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. In other words, in the older brother's view, God is scary and he's dangerous. Or maybe at best, he's, a, he's constantly disappointed and needs to be managed and pacified by our good behavior and our religiosity. The older, older brother views God like a micromanaging boss who keeps a running list of our successes and our failures and rewards and punishes accordingly. Either way, this is not a God who you want to be in a relationship with, right? Neither of these gods, the God of the younger brother or the God of the older brother, neither one of these is a God who you want to be in a relationship with. Many of you guys have heard of the story, Alice in Wonderland. You've seen the various movies, but uh, it was written in 1865 by Lewis Carroll. 
And one of the uh, one of the characters in the story Alice in Wonderland is the Queen of Hearts, right? And so Alice runs into the Queen of Hearts. This is the Disney version of her, and you can see she's stomping her foot and raising her fists, right? And uh, and essentially, what happens is she rules this particular land, and uh, and in her land, everybody just does what she says. Everybody just appeases her. Everybody just tries to keep her happy. The the playing cards fall down before her when she comes around. Her husband, the king of hearts, placates her. The soldiers, her soldiers, do the same. All of them live in fear of her rage and of her power. And the message from all of these people, all of these characters in the story is, do whatever it takes to keep her happy. Just do whatever it takes to keep her happy. All right, some of us grew up in homes like that, right? We grew up in a home with a father, where the message your mother conveyed to you was just do whatever it takes to keep him happy, just appease him. You know, some of you grew up in homes uh, with mothers like that, where the message of your father, rather than standing up and defending you, was just do whatever it takes to make her happy. She's scary. She's a tyrant. Just appease her, right? Part of what Jesus is doing here, again, is he's saying some of you in the crowd, some of you view God this way. You view him as a scary boss. You, You view him as a bully who just needs to be appeased. And so what you do in response to that is you go, well, I'm going to take the religious angle. I'm going to tithe. I'm going to pray. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to try not to be too negative. I'm going to be good and try not to be too bad. I'm going to try to stay on his good side. And if this is how you view your relationship with God, or if this is how you view God, then you've just got to give him what he wants in the hopes that you can keep him happy until it's time to go to heaven and you get rewarded because you did more good stuff than bad stuff. But the truth is, You'll never want to have a relationship with a God like that. And frankly, after a little while, you'll simply give up in exhaustion, right? If you think that's who God is, that he's someone to simply be appeased, you'll simply give up. You'll be exhausted because it's just too much, right? And so Jesus says to the crowd, there's really two groups of you in in this crowd. And some of you are younger brothers who think you just need to escape from God. And some of you are older brothers who think you just need to appease God. And what Jesus came to do is to say, you actually are rejecting a God who doesn't exist, right? I'm going to reveal to you who my heavenly father is. And so the last thing that Jesus does in this story is he invites us to see God as Jesus sees him. Instead of a tyrant, instead of a bully, rather that we're able to see God through his lens, and that's the lens of a heavenly loving father, a good, good God. Part of what Jesus does is he corrects the view of the older brother. Again, we're going to jump into verse 28 here. Verse 28 says, The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Now, you, you, it's kind of hard for us here because we can disagree with our parents publicly and we can say no to them. We're encouraged to do that in our cultural context. Not so in the ancient Near East. That didn't work that way. And so when the older brother refused to go in, that would have been a, a huge offense to his father. Right? That was a shame and honor culture. And so the brother would have been offending the father horribly and embarrassing the father horribly, right? And, and so what's interesting is when the father finally has to go out, it says, so the father went out, the, the brother refused to go in, so the father went out and pleaded with him. In the ancient Near East, this public disrespect would have been punishable by casting this older brother out, right? And the, you know, the father could have come out and said, you're out of here. In fact, as Jesus told the story in the cadence of a storyteller, when it says the old, you know, the father went out, the people, the audience may have been waiting for this father, you know, to, to beat his son with a stick, which would have been kind of acceptable in that culture. 
Uh, or to se- simply say, you're out of here. You're no longer my son. You've offended me. You've disobeyed me publicly. You've shamed me. But that's not what the father does. Because again, what Jesus is doing is he's trying to change the perception of these people in terms of his father. It says this. It says the father went out and pleaded with him to come in, right? I mean, the father would have been completely justified in saying, you're out, I'm done with you. But instead, the father goes out and pleads with him, right? The father forgives the offense and instead invites and pleads him to come to the party. Verse 29. Verse 29 talks about how the the older brother responds, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. What the father says is, look, you've been trying to bribe me by your good behavior. You've been trying to bribe me by your religiosity, but all you had to do was ask. All you had to do is ask. Everything I have is yours. I'd willingly give it to you. All you have to do is ask. Jesus corrects the view of the older brother and declares to the crowd that God is just as patient with the older brother's self-righteousness as he is with the younger brother's selfishness. He's a loving father. He pleads with us to come in and to celebrate. No bribes, no managing, no appeasing, no performing, no fear, no doubts. All he has is ours. All we have to do is ask. Most of us in this room today view God this way. So it's kind of our default position. We're the religious ones, right? That's why we're sitting in this room this morning. It's because so many of us have basically viewed God as this bully, and we've said, all right, let's just do what it takes to appease him. But Jesus comes to you this morning, and he says, that's not God, right? You're you're appeasing someone that doesn't exist because my heavenly father loves you. My heavenly father is patient with you. My heavenly father wants what's best for you. My heavenly father wants to invite you into the party. My heavenly father is patient with you and merciful to you, even when you've insulted him and refused to come in and tried to bribe him through your good behavior, my heavenly father still loves you and simply wants, pleads for you to enter into a relationship with him. You don't have to do any special song or dance. You don't have to earn his affection. What Jesus is saying is you've already got it. Come in, right? Some of you in the room this morning need to hear that. You religious ones out there, we need to hear this. Jesus not only corrects that view, but he obviously corrects the younger brother view as well. We're going to jump back into these verses. It says this, but, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Okay, part of what Jesus is doing here is he's basically, basically painting this picture of God as a heavenly father who is longing for his younger uh, siblings to come home, right? He's longing for some of you to come home. Right, some of you think that you just need to escape him, right? You think he's a bully, you think he's horrible, but instead he's a heavenly father who is standing out in front of his tent and he's waiting, longing for you to come home. It says this, it says his father saw him and was filled with compassion. That word in the Greek always means to enter into someone's pain so much so that it becomes your own pain. In other words, you know, God could simply say, man, I'm cutting you off, I'm done with you, but that's not what he does Instead, he enters into your pain. He enters into your suffering, right? 
your physical pain, your emotional pain, your relational pain, your spiritual pain. God the Father is a, is a Father who enters into your pain with you. Filled with compassion for him, he ran to his son. In the ancient Near East, uh, fathers, especially wealthy fathers, never ran, right? That would involve lifting up your robes, right? Like a, like a mother on a little house on the prairie. But here, Jesus paints a picture of God that's almost offensive to his listeners when all of a sudden this uh, father pulls up his robes and runs to his father, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Right again, in the ancient Near East, a father could have been justified in sort of kicking his his son out, casting him away, but to hug him, to kiss him would have been shocking, right? Would have been shocking in the ancient Near East. But here Jesus is painting this picture of this God who just is so happy that his son has come home that he can't control his emotions and he throws himself upon this younger son and hugs him and he kisses him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. All of these are symbols of complete restoration. By the way, the son, uh, the father doesn't even let the son finish his explanation or his petition. He kind of interrupts him and he basically says, restore him completely. The robe would have been a symbol of wealth. It would have been a symbol of honor. It would have been a symbol of status. He doesn't say bring a robe and put it on him to cover his nakedness, but bring the best robe. And not only that, but it says bring the ring, which symbolized authority. In other words, he's fully back in. He's fully my son's shoes. Always distinguish a son from a servant or from a slave. All of these things are symbols of complete restoration. And don't miss the word quick there. Because God the Father is a God who wants to cover your shame quickly. Not for his sake, but for your sake, right? He wants to throw a towel around you and cover your nakedness, to cover your ugliness, to cover your sin. He has no desire uh, to expose your shame to the world. Rather, he wants to, like any good father, to cover you over with his robe, with his righteousness, right? Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate again at an exorbitant cost. They would have killed this fattened calf that was rare in that day and age. They would have invited all the townspeople and they would have had a celebration. And there at the table would have been this wayward son in the best robe with the ring with sandals on his feet at the place of honor. Jesus corrects the view of the younger brother, the irreligious folks and says, God wants you to flourish. He's a loving father. He throws the best parties for the worst people. He's a father filled with compassion towards his children, despite our sin and weakness. He doesn't stand and wait for us to return. He's a father who lifts up his robes and runs to his wayward daughters and sons, smothering us, hugging us, holding us, and kissing us. It's almost embarrassing, right? He grants us complete restoration. He willingly covers our shame, and he invites us to take our place again at the feast. Does that make sense? Basically what God is, I mean, Jesus is doing here is saying, look, you've all rejected a God that doesn't exist. You've rejected the wrong God, right? He's not a tyrant. He's not a bully. He's not a mean boss. He doesn't need to be escaped from. In fact, if you knew who he really was, you'd run towards him, right? God is not a God who needs to be appeased 
right? Rather, he's a God who already loves you. Everything he's got is already yours. All you have to do is ask. He invites both the younger brother and the older brother to come to the feast and to celebrate at his expense, right? The price of his mercy, the price of his grace. Today is the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is nothing if not a feast, right? It's nothing if it's not a family meal where those who trust in Jesus and who look and see God as a loving heavenly father are invited to come and have a seat at the table. And so as you look around the room today, on the right-hand side, my right-hand side of the sanctuary, there's bread and wine. On the left-hand side of the sanctuary, uh, there's bread and grape juice. But what these meals communicate, what each of these communicate, is that you're restored completely, that you're covered with the robe of Christ's righteousness, right? That you have the authority as a daughter or son of God because God gives you that authority as, as his adopted child, right? He puts shoes on your feet. He says, you're not a slave, right? You don't have to interact with me like a servant. Rather, you're a child. I put shoes on your feet. This is a family meal that communicates that you're beautiful to him, that you're perfect to him, that he's done everything necessary to make sure that you can come and have a seat at the table. The one uh, provision that I would make is this. I would simply say that if you haven't come to that point in your life where you see God as your loving heavenly father and you trust in Jesus alone as your savior, I would ask you to simply sit back and watch the people of God, the children of God, as they worship their heavenly father. Uh, One more um, quick thing is standing at each of the tables this morning, there will be um, an elder or some uh, person from the church who would be more than willing to pray with you, right? More than willing to talk with you, more than willing to communicate the truth of the gospel with you if you desire that. Let me take a moment now. Let me read the words of institution. I'll pray, and then I'll ask you to go and to receive the Lord's Supper, to sit at the feast of your heavenly Father. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would repent of seeing you through the lens of the younger brother as someone simply to be escaped from. Father, I pray that we would repent of seeing you through the lens of the older brother, that you're simply some ogre in the sky who needs to be appeased. Rather, Father, I pray that we would see you as Jesus asked us to see you, as he pleaded with us to see you, as a loving heavenly Father who is patient, who is forgiving, who is kind, Father, who who grants access into your presence based upon your own mercy, your own grace, at your expense. And so, Father, I pray that we would come to this table today um, with nothing in our hands uh, but our need, and nothing in our hands but the fact that we cling to your Son, Jesus, as our righteousness, as our substitute. We pray all these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.